Hello and welcome back to the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. This is episode 29 and it'll be the final week that I'm with my co-host Tyler Brooks before Leah returns next week. And today we're going to be talking about vitamin C. So we're going to be doing a bit bit of a deep dive on everything vitamin C related and how it could be beneficial and everything like that. I wouldn't say I really know more about vitamin C than the average dietitian, but I would say Tyler knows more about vitamin C than the average dietitian. (laughs) So it's going to be mostly me just asking questions and following my interests basically and Tyler talking. So what did you want to start off with? Like what's an interesting thing about vitamin C? Where are we starting with? Oh, first of all, I'd say just a random interesting fact first up. Humans and some primates are one of the only... Um, animals that can't make their own vitamin C. Most animals can make their own vitamin C, like your dog can make its own vitamin C. Humans can't do that. We have to get it from diet. Do you know why that's the thing? I did a little bit of read into it. I think it was just some random branch of evolution way back in the day. There's a few other random species that can't make their own vitamin C, but most can. Um, Humans are, yeah, one of the few that can't, and whatever branch of evolution it was back in the day. um, We've evolved past that, I think... Well, I would assume mostly because we do get it through diet pretty easily or pretty comfortably in most circumstances. So probably has something to do with it. Yeah. So we get through diet pretty easily. As you said, we don't make it. How long does it stay in our system after we eat it? Sure. So vitamin C usually sticks around in the system for about 24 hours. It's something we kind of need a relatively consistent intake of. So, for example, if you were to supplement a dose or consume a dose through food, it will elevate the amount of vitamin C in your blood for, yeah, about 24 hours before we see it return back to baseline levels. Yeah, for sure. So, like, then looking at in terms of, like, any applications, I suppose we need to keep that in mind, like, in terms of... This is jumping straight into the weeds, hey, but, like, something (laughs) something that I, I find interesting is, like, the whole topic of vitamin C and exercise and stuff like that. Sure. Um... Do we want to go there first, or do we want to go? Let's go background stuff first. Let's come back to that. Like, do yep. you, let's go through background stuff. Like, what is what is important background stuff we need to know? Yeah, about I think there's a bit there. of important context yeah. before we jump straight to that. Um, largely around things like dosing and all yeah. those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, I guess so. Backing up a little bit. First of all, um, you'd probably think of vitamin C most commonly as something you'd use if you get sick yeah. um, to help with immune function and those sorts of things. Um, that comes from this uh, idea that some of the immune cells, neutrophils, for example, that help fight bacteria and virus and infection and that sort of stuff, use a higher percentage of vitamin C compared to a lot of other cells in the body. These immune cells have even more vitamin C to work with. Um, So if you have more of those resources to help fight the, you know, whatever pathogen or bacteria you're fighting off, um, you're potentially going to be able to do it more effectively. So I've heard a common line, like, so most people take it, I'd assume to prevent and aid recovery from sickness. Mm-hmm. I've heard a common line from a lot of people in the nutrition world saying stuff like, it doesn't seem to prevent the frequency of getting sick, but it does seem to help speed up recovery. And a common line that's chucked out there is by about half a day on average. Reading through a lot of stuff you've kind of written down in the notes and prep for this podcast, it's obviously a lot more complex than that, but like expanding on that kind of topic. So in terms of reducing, potentially reducing the duration of cold symptoms, the research is pretty mixed on this if you look at the overall amount of research. Um, some find a meaningful benefit, some don't, um, some are kind of inconsistent, and we'll get into a few problems with why this might be in a minute. But um, overall, if you do dose to the right amount, 
there's some pretty good results with, um, you know, up to a 25% reduction potentially in cold and flu duration. Now, a lot of that research comes from uh, people who are taking it in advance, so prophylactically, so taking vitamin C daily, and then taking more vitamin C at the onset of cold and flu symptoms. And they had a pretty good benefit, um, or they showed potential benefit beyond just regular vitamin C supplementation when the cold starts. So there might be additional benefit in making sure you have a good amount leading up to that. Then when you do get those cold and flu symptoms, taking more again. And this could come back to, you know, just strengthening those immune cells and and some of those active processes that are using up vitamin C in fighting off the cold and flu. And I think, like, if you're looking at anywhere from, geez, even a 10% reduction in cold and flu symptoms or duration, that's pretty meaningful. Like, all you want to do when you're sick is get better. Yeah. Like, when you have a cold or a flu, man flu even in extreme cases, all you want to do is get better. So, if you can say your cold goes for four days and you get a 25% reduction, you know, you're potentially sick for significantly less time than you would be otherwise. I'd say that's probably worthwhile. Um, and there's an even more sort of, I guess, there's a slightly higher magnitude of effect in children as well. So this could come down to parents. Like if you want your kid to get better faster, <laughs> pump some vitamin C into them potentially, um, you know, and it, it could have that positive benefit of those, like your kids getting better quicker. Yeah, and like out of interest, are there any other like groups? Like I think I saw somewhere in there about athletes and stuff like that. Does it have more of a role in terms of athletes from that perspective? Yeah, so in terms of like preventing the cold and flu, in general population, it doesn't seem to prevent it. It doesn't seem to prevent you getting sick much. Um, In athlete population, it does. So there was a 50%, roughly a 50% reduction um, of incidence of cold and flu in endurance athletes, for example, who were supplementing with vitamin C. Um, we'll touch on a little bit of how it kind of affects exercise a little bit later on. Yeah. But yeah, there's potentially um, more of a role that it plays with those higher level athletes or people exercising at a, a higher level than say the average person. Yeah, super interesting for sure. And like even something that like we've kind of spoken a little bit, but like probiotics and stuff like that, that same kind of thinking, like when mm. they're in overreaching phases, particularly endurance athletes as well, like they're so much more likely to get sick and that seems to affect long-term progress over long phases. Like there are some statistics out there, things from like Olympics, like their data just tracking and being like, how much is this affecting people's training blocks? How much is this affecting performance and actual events and stuff like that? Mm. And it's like, if you get sick less frequently, your performance will actually be better eventually because of it. Yeah, for sure. So you miss I don't know, a week of training through being sick Yeah, and then you're training at 60, 70% capacity the next week because you're still recovering a little bit, not 100% yet. You know, that's two weeks out of your calendar year. If that happens, you know, five times that year, you're losing 10 weeks a year of training. Like that's a whole training block in some exercise programs. So that's going to potentially have an effect if you're looking at a a long-term phase, like a a yearly competition or a four-yearly competition. Four years, 10 weeks a year, you're missing 40 weeks of training potentially through being sick. If you yeah. can reduce or prevent that, that's going to be meaningful. Yeah, and even just the random sports, like it just breaks a rhythm, like when training is going well and then mm. you just break that rhythm. Like, yeah, it's a big difference. What I guess I really want to talk about is, I guess, dosing. So, mm. like, let's start with gold standard. What is the typical dosages? Let's start there and that's like, then go a little bit more advanced from there. So, like, recommended daily intakes, those kind of things. Sure. So... The recommended daily intake in Australia is about 45 milligrams per day of vitamin C for men or women. Um, That's for adults. So inside of that, individual needs are going to vary pretty significantly. 
Um, so one of vitamin C's main, I guess, uh, roles in the body is to help prevent oxidation or help you know reduce inflammation. So we have these compounds in the body called reactive oxygen species. These are things that are basically unstable molecules. Vitamin C can help stabilize them by donating one of its chemical groups. So they, vitamin C basically helps reduce how much of these inflammatory compounds are floating around the body, essentially. So based on your lifestyle, you will have more or less inflammation compared to somebody else. So for example, um, smoking increases the amount of inflammation you have in your body. Alcohol intake will increase that. Um, exercise will even increase that to some degree. So there are various natural and unnatural sources of inflammation. So vitamin C has a role in, in combating these um, and the effects they have on overall inflammation in the body. So if you have more inflammation, potentially need more vitamin C. Now the RDI is set at 45 milligrams per kilogram, uh, sorry, 45 milligrams per day um, to prevent deficiency. So that's what the RDIs are there for. So recommended daily intakes are done to prevent deficiency at a population level. Um, they're not there to optimize health and performance. So is it optimal to just be getting in the RDI, which you can probably do through fruits and vegetables? Probably not if you have enhanced needs or exercising a high level or various lifestyle factors that are contributing. Let's add some context there. So two things I want to consider. So one of them is like easy to get through fruits and vegetables. Like let's put context around it. Like sure, how easy sure. is it? Like let's go through yeah, some yeah. foods. Like how much in an orange? Like um, I think it's about 80. I, I don't want to I don't wanna get this wrong. Maybe I'll Google it. Yeah. It's like 80 milligrams or something like that. I know that you can get um, typically the average sort of millimolar level of vitamin C in the blood is somewhere between 70 to 85, I think, on average, if you've got a diet rich in vegetables and fruits and those sorts of things. So that will sit your plasma level at around 70 to 85 millimoles. And we'll add some more context to that in a little bit when yeah. it comes to supplementation. Um, so so an orange, just cutting in, so an orange is 70 milligrams okay. on average. Obviously, it depends on the size, so close enough. And like people, whenever I say that fact, they're like, oh, a capsicum's got more than an orange. <laughs> like it's got double the amount or something. Like, like it is, like if the RDI is 45 milligrams and one orange has 70, like yeah. it is pretty comfortable to get through foods, basically. You'd think that, but I know you're a fan of this. How many people get their recommended servings yeah. of fruits and vegetables it's per day? Low. It's... It would just, like the combination is like less than six percent, right? Per, yeah. So yeah. you know, even if you are getting that from one source, <laughs> there is probably a fair few people yeah. that aren't even getting to that. Yeah. Um, so again, the RDI is just to prevent deficiency. So again, you can have an orange and it's going to prevent you getting scurvy or getting deficiency of yeah. vitamin C. But again, that's potentially a fair margin away from what might be the optimal, optimal. amount of vitamin C. Yeah. I've got another just thought that I've always considered and I think we've spoken about it like the whole like scurvy thing mm. say somebody goes carnivore yes why don't they get scurvy there are very small amounts in certain meats of yeah. vitamin C so you will get some in tissues there's not a lot because vitamin C is a water soluble vitamin so it's not really stored that yeah. much in it won't get anywhere near the 45 milligram mark though it won't um, I I don't know why so my understanding is it is something to do with like with the amount of carbohydrates, like something along like if you have a higher carbohydrate diet, it seems like you need more vitamin C is the kind of thing that a lot of people talk about. Or maybe right. to get scurvy, you've just got to go pretty, pretty low. Like the difference between 45 milligrams and scurvy is quite 
significant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. It's, it's a very hard rabbit hole because it's kind of like oh, yeah, the people in the carnivore that. crew, they're not exactly the most reliable source of information as well. <laughs> yeah. No, I do. Yeah, I do know that's the thing. And I do know they say there are some trace amounts in the foods they're eating in, in yeah. meat and like liver, I think, and things like that yeah, that are yeah, more likely to be consumed yeah. on the carnivore diet as opposed to the regular diet. Yeah, that addresses it. Um, but yeah, I didn't know about carbohydrate increasing. Yeah, it's something I've seen a lot of people in that crowd kind of there yeah go. even that's an interesting one though because as we spoke about in the last one protein can be converted to glucose so it's not yeah. like you've got no glucose coming in like you're still getting glucose yeah for sure um okay so going back to what might be a more optimal amount of intake for vitamin c uh, we touched on rdi being 45 milligrams um the upper limit which is set um you know along with the rdi as in upper limits kind of like how much would be the most that is recommended to take or the you know a safe amount now the upper limit in australia is set to 1000 milligrams per day um keeping in mind the rdi is 45 milligrams per day that's already a big gap between yeah, upper limit and rdi yeah um now if we look at what vitamin c supplementation or intake does to those plasma levels we touched on it before plasma levels as in how much is sitting in your blood is somewhere between 70 to 85 millimoles now, 200 milligrams of vitamin C is going to take your plasma levels up to 90 millimoles. Um, so, 1.25 grams, as in a little bit more than the upper limit of intake, will take your plasma levels from 90 up to 180, milligram, uh, 180 millimoles. So, that's a twofold increase, but you have to take more than twofold the amount of vitamin C. Um, taking three grams of vitamin C orally will take your plasma levels up to 220 millimole. And that's about the highest we see your blood levels of vitamin C get to from oral supplementation. Now, that's 66 times the yeah. RDI. That's a huge, huge increase in what is recommended to take daily and still a magnitude of three times the upper limit of intake. But that's where we see a lot of the research um, show benefit in vitamin C supplementation is that these higher intakes and the intakes above the upper limit. So, you know, the supplementation and how much you're getting through diet is a completely different thing. Um, I'd say that's important to consider when we look at the research because a lot of the research, as I mentioned earlier, shows mixed benefits. So that could come from how much did they use in the research? Did they use what would be the safe upper limit? Because we see benefits far beyond that. Um, when we go above the upper limit, it could be, you know, did you only use X amount as opposed to a huge amount? Um, you know, there's various things that go along with vitamin C timing. As we talked about earlier, you return to baseline levels after 24 hours. That means at 12 hours, you've got half the amount. So some studies will dose multiple times per yeah. day. Some will dose every four hours. So there is so much mixed methodology in the way these studies are done um, that probably is why you see such mixed results in whether it's effective or not. Yeah. So out of curiosity, because I know you take high-dose vitamin C, hmm. Do you take it multiple times per day for this reason? I do, especially yeah. when I'm sick. If I feel like I've got a cold or a flu coming on, I'm doing three grams every four hours. Yeah. And I know that's maintaining my absolute yeah. maximal plasma concentration of vitamin C. Um, and anecdotally for me, it's fine. It works yeah. great. Like I tend to be pretty resilient. I rarely get, I supplement vitamin C daily, but I rarely get sick. When I do, I absolutely stack vitamin C in there. Yeah. I figure if I'm going to increase my plasma levels of vitamin C and I'm trying to fight off an illness or a sickness, I'm yeah. going to increase it to the maximal level. Yeah. Um, I don't tend to go to half measures, but that's just me. Yeah, it's really Not pushing. something I always, rec like, not something I really ever recommend to my clients in terms of that amount, but... Um, 
personally, I find it works well for me. Yeah, for sure. Really pushing the threshold there. And I guess that begs the question, if you're comfortable doing that, why would any thoughts on why the upper limit would be set at one gram? Yeah, I think um, what you see is like potential GI upset and things yeah. like that. So um, you do see uh, potential like diarrhea, those sorts of things. If yeah. you do do a very high dose, supposedly, um, I've never experienced it. But yeah. like I say, I'm going from when I get sick and I dose a high amount, I'm going from like a normal daily dose anyway. Um, if you were to not have any in the diet and you've got a very low level and you're not used to consuming it and all of a sudden you dump three grams in there, yeah, you may have an issue. But realistically, um, I think that's where it comes from. Yeah. Um, and again, it says in those upper limits, if you have a look on you know the government websites and that sort of thing, it says it's not possible to establish an upper limit for vitamin C, but 1,000 milligrams per day is a prudent limit. Yeah. That doesn't really mean anything. There's no research showing like don't take more than that. It's yeah. dangerous to take more. Um, yeah, so I think it just comes from the GI upset potentially. For sure. So the next two things that I want to talk through is sport and exercise and mm -hmm. maybe even cancer. Out of those two, which would you prefer yeah. to start off with? Um, maybe just cancer because we'll just talk briefly on it. Like, yeah. I haven't gone heaps far down that rabbit hole. Um, but the, um, the, the research in cancer comes, well, is largely done at an extremely high dose, much more than you can achieve orally. So orally, like I mentioned, the maximum amount you can take is about three grams. Any more than that doesn't do anything in terms of further increasing your plasma levels. Um, there is cases out there where people have been given 40 grams through intravenous vitamin yeah, C. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that's a huge amount. So we're talking about three grams um, being 66 times the RDI. Yeah. There's 40 gram doses being pumped into people intravenously. Um, I believe mechanistically when vitamin C is um, reduced or when it donates its um, hydroxyl groups, it has a structure somewhat similar to glucose and it starts to interrupt glucose uptake into cancer cells. The cancer cells need obviously the glucose to, you know, replicate and survive. And I believe it has some sort of, well, that's a proposed mechanism um, with it helping it with the management of cancer and chemotherapy and things like that. Um, as well as those sort of anti-inflammatory um, roles that vitamin C has. So I think that's the mechanism. Do you have much more to add to that? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Like one caveat that I'm going to give onto this is that it is a very mixed area in the actual research in terms of outcomes and stuff like that. Even like I was looking at stuff before that, like obviously like I've, I've looked at this for years as well. It's an obvious, it's an interesting topic, but like I haven't gone super, super deep down the rabbit hole because most people seem to be at one extreme or the other. Like there's a lot of people at one extreme who's like quite literally vitamin C, very significant thing that's really going to help with cancer management in high doses, IV, all these kind of things. At the other end of the spectrum, there is also smart people who are like, no, we think vitamin C is actually detrimental to cancer. There are people who are saying lines like, it seems to protect all the cells in the body from chemotherapy, including cancer cells, which therefore means chemotherapy suddenly becomes less effective and so on and so forth. Um, and you have to go on for longer, etc., to get the same results. And like, Maybe the answer's in the middle. Maybe there's a bit of both being true or whatever. I just want to add that caveat being like, I'm not out here telling people do Vitamin this. C is going to cure you. Can't yeah, you? yeah. <laughs> basically. Like I think you, if you're going through that process, you want to have people around you who you definitely trust who it is their job to know the answer to that question, basically. For sure. And yeah. uh, 
But in us, we just like to look at the research yeah. a little bit and talk through some of these things. Um, yeah, out of professional curiosity. Yeah, because that, that is mostly what it is for me. Like, I haven't had a cancer patient in... I don't even know how long it's been. It's been a long time since I've had one, so I haven't had to go deep down that rabbit hole. But it is an interesting thing, and I think it's something that should be on people's radar and be aware of for sure. Mm. And yeah, the, that um, <laughs> mechanism of you know taking it intravenously yeah. is like so next level. And I, I do like the idea of like, I don't know, the science behind that's kind of yeah. cool. It's like, how much nutrients can we pump into the body and is it going to do anything? Yeah. Like I said, I, I don't mind taking things to extremes. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. And like, I think people need to be looking at those errors as well. Very Joe Rogan-esque as well. That's like, <laughs> pretty sure when he got COVID, he did IV vitamin C, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, Rogan would be that. Sure. Yeah. Um, so in terms of exercise, like I'm going to put some background on this before we go deeper in this. So basically up until about two or three years ago in the evidence-based lifting community, there's a big thing where everyone was like, don't take high-dose vitamin C around the time of lifting because it's going to blunt your hypertrophy adaptations. And the logic basically came from thinking it through in terms of when we lift, we're doing muscle damage and we're causing some inflammation and all of these things that we often think of as negatives. But arguably that's part of what stimulates the adaptation, which then leads to muscle growth. That is what prompts your body to try and recover and grow stronger. Um, and the argument was if we blunt some of these things, it blunts the adaptation. And a lot of people were then also looking at the information or the studies that had been done on endurance athletes. And it seemed to be like it was leaning in favor of if you have high dose antioxidants around the time of endurance training, you get less sore because there's less oxidative damage. But their adaptations didn't seem to be as strong. In the lifting world, because somebody, Eric Trexler, did a systematic review on this topic and meta-analysis and came to the conclusion that there's like almost no research on lifters on this and like his stance after doing a systematic review is it doesn't seem to matter but his other stance was he's like i just don't see much benefit in it either so it's like if you if you want to be cautious have it separate from that but like there's a few things to cover in that because it's like mm. what what are your thoughts on that in terms of one because as you said how long it's in the system for is there some dosing protocols if you were concerned about that but then two, should you be concerned about it at all? And if you're not concerned about it, we do know it seems to decrease the late onset muscle soreness, which is an advantage as well. Yeah, for sure. So that's a really good, uh, I don't know, really cool path to walk down. And I like this one. So, um, yeah, it's, as Aiden mentioned, yeah, as you mentioned, um, you do produce some of these um, reactive oxygen species or these inflammatory compounds when you exercise. Now, the body uses those for signaling. It's almost like a... We've done this to the body. This is a signaling thing that tells the body, address this, get better at it or improve so that next time we do this, you know, we can handle it better. So I think a lot of the research in endurance athletes shows like a potentially reduced VO2 max or at least a less of an increase or an improvement in VO2 max with training. So it can potentially blunt some of those, you know, those mitochondrial adaptations you do to be able to produce energy while like through oxidative metabolism and things like that. So um, I guess what I'm getting at there is it might potentially reduce some of those training benefits. Uh, from my understanding of the research, it was from high dose antioxidants, not just yeah, vitamin C. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was vitamins, vitamin E, vitamin I believe a. in yeah. used in conjunction with vitamin C. Yeah. So I don't think the research is as strong if it's just vitamin C. Yeah. So that's one consideration. Um, the other thing, like you mentioned, is it does reduce DOMS. So that might be worth it. Like 
if you can find a good balance between reducing DOMS, training more, um, you're potentially going to get some other training adaptations outside of just VO2 max. When we look at lifters, who cares about VO2 max for lifters? Yeah, we take that out of the picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah we don't need cardio. Um, so I don't personally see it as being a problem, but it is something worth thinking about in terms of timing. So why take the risk? Why would you take it just before exercise yeah. if it is potentially going to blunt your... Um, you know, your adaptations to those. So let's take it in the morning if we're training in the afternoon. If we're training in the evening, take it, I don't know, a couple of hours later before bed or, you yeah. know, something, something along those lines. So um, apart from that, though, there is one good reason to take it just before training, and that's to promote collagen th- synthesis yeah, if we yeah. are using a collagen loading protocol. Um, so, you know, you got to weigh all these benefits. It's like, one, do I want reduced DOMS? Cool, that could be worthwhile to me. Um but, like two, do I care about VO2 max or if that's affected, which is mainly what the research shows it, you know, affecting. Um, not really for us. So, you know, might not really be a concern. And then I guess the third one is do we want to try and prioritize things like your tendon and ligament repair through yeah. a collagen priming protocol? Because if we do, we know that we need to time collagen and vitamin C appropriately. And that's within a pretty close time frame of when you're going out to exercise. Cool. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And that's also my stance on it. Like take the collagen stuff out of it start off with if i have a lifter who wants to take it i'll usually just put it separately in the day like a separate thing not close to their time of lifting obviously as you mentioned if they have a high dose that's in their system for 24 hours or whatever they'll still have some in their system but it is a bit of damage mitigation if there is any at all um this is going to sound real bro sciencey but like there's a lot of high level bodybuilders who have high dose vitamin c around the time of lifting <laughs> and they still make gains so it's like it's not a powerful effect like yes if it is a real effect it's probably not a big deal And then based on that kind of stance of like, maybe it's a concern, maybe it's not, but even if it is, it's not a big deal. That's where I come into the collagen where it's like, well, if I've got conviction about this whole collagen thing, where like taking collagen pre-workout alongside vitamin C and then having that help with collagen in our body, for example, tendons, ligaments, et cetera. If that is a thing that is going to work, the effect of that is going to be relatively significant versus the Mm. potential small detrimental effect of this. So it's kind of like it, it... outweighs that basically sure magnitude of effect yeah 100%. Um, and then we look at as we just we did touch on it just before but 50 percent reduced incidence of like cold and flu yeah for you know athletes or exercising populations so that's that's potentially you know worth taking it for as well like what's going to be you know more meaningful will you get a very small if any reduced yeah. you know training adaptation from any one training session or are you going to get sick for a week and what kind of training adaptation effects is that going to have yeah so i think that's worth taking into consideration as well personally i um yeah i'm a big believer and i'll take it every day yeah the the last thing i want to wrap on, on is like the whole criticism that a lot of people have of vitamin c they talk about being a water soluble vitamin when you have too much you just pee it out what is like <laughs> if you've touched on this and you, if people read between the lines they'll kind of like understand already but you talked about the whole increasing um plasma levels as the vitamin c increases right Mm, yeah so i hate this um argument like oh you're taking multivitamins all you're doing is making expensive urine i think that is a fundamental misunderstanding of how a lot of nutrients are used by the body how many roles that they do have in the body um and how uptake of those nutrients works so vitamin c for example there are transporters in your small intestine which transport the vitamin C from your intestinal cavities into your bloodstream across the other side of that barrier. They can become saturated. You can maximally, you can basically max those out so you can't 
kind of get any more vitamin C in any faster. So that's kind of like a, it's almost like an exponential curve of how much you will absorb based on how much is in there. So if you take a small amount of vitamin C, like we saw 200 milligrams is going to take your plasma levels up to somewhere around 90. Um, to get double that, you need to take six times the amount of vitamin C. So that means you're proportionally not absorbing nearly as much as you were at the smaller dose. Um, to then get a maximal plasma of 220, um, it's only an extra 40 millimole, but you have to take nearly three times the amount again to get that last 40 millimole in there. So yes, you are peeing more out. Um, you aren't absorbing that all, but you're still not reaching the maximal amount that you can take up. So if you do want to reach those maximum amounts, you've got to supplement. And sure, you're going to pee some out. Um, but that's the only way you can get up to those higher amounts. Um, the analogy I like to give that's kind of, it kind of fits. But like, if you think about protein, when we take in a high amount of protein, we do increase the amount of nitrogen we pee out, which is from metabolizing the protein. You never hear anyone saying, uh, all you're doing by eating more protein is making expensive pee. No, we, we increase protein above the RDI because we have a specific kind of goal that we want with that protein. We want to build muscle tissue. We want to recover from training. Um, in the same way that I like to think about taking vitamins, like we're increasing them with a specific reason behind increasing them, and that's to optimize performance. Let's take more and not just get by on the minimum. Um, that's kind of my perspective on it. It's just like a, a pet hate of mine when people are like, oh, all you're doing is creating expensive urine. It's like, okay, well, I don't think you understand quite how this works. Yeah, it's just a bit of nuance. Like, there's a lot of black and white thinkers out there, but like, it, it can be both. It can be diminishing returns. Yes. Without being, no, this is the line. And once you get there, once you go above the RDI, there's no additional benefit. Like, it can be both. Like, there can be diminishing returns. Yeah. But you still get additional benefit. For sure. It's like, okay, I'm taking my millimolar concentration of my blood from 180 to 220. What's that last 40 giving me yeah. that the first 180 didn't? Is it worth taking yeah. 66 times the RDI of vitamin C? Might not be for you. Yeah. So, yeah. It's not a blanket recommendation by any means that everybody needs to max out their vitamin and mineral uptake. But yeah, I do think there is uh, nuances to that. For sure. Well, we'll wrap things up there. This has been episode 29 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. Um, hopefully you enjoyed this deep dive on vitamin C and hopefully some of you found it interesting. Interesting.